A very good morning to you. It's wonderful to see you all here. My name is Neil. I'm married to Kate. And this morning uh, we celebrate Pentecost. It's Pentecost Sunday today. And as we've been doing a series on vineyard DNA, or as Kate was saying, um, the things that matter to us, i.e. those sugary things in your hands, uh, what better time to talk about the oldest prayer of the church, one of our core values, one of our deepest longings, come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. So you've got a Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 8. And these uh, verses are basically Jesus' last words to his disciples before he goes back to his Father in heaven at his ascension. This is Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It says this, there is a fly. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. And on the day of Pentecost, just some 10 days or so later, these words were realized. Have a look at Acts chapter 2, verse 1. It says this, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. This is like, in this it's like an amazing occasion. There's this cacophony of sound. There's wind and fire and languages of every kind. And it's, it's all very tangible. It's all very uh, physical. It's, it's quite a remarkable scene. And Pentecost is, is, is really like a long-standing Jewish feast and party. It's a Christian celebration as old as the Church of Jesus Christ. And this Pentecost moment described here in the New Testament in Acts chapter 2 is, is this first century event in Jerusalem where uh, people's heads basically caught fire, sort of. I mean, it's all a little bit random. It's, there's this indoor windstorm that swirls through this house party, and everyone is kind of understandably baffled, and some, you know, quite naturally panic. And then those with fiery heads suddenly become like polyglots. They suddenly become like multilingual. Now, it has to be said that uh, in and of itself, this whole Pentecost account, it is pretty random. It is pretty odd. But we kind of get used to it. You know, we sort of, it's Acts 2, of course it is. But when you start reading it, it's, yeah, this is strange. But maybe looking at it through the lenses of the wider kind of narrative arc of Scripture might help um, it make a little bit more sense. So first of all, we're going to look at that today. First of all, we, um, we have to remember that Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, you know, he's um, primarily, primarily an historian. He's not a, he's not a journalist. And so he's telling us what's happened um, by crafting his narrative very intentionally and, and he's mapping onto it sort of the Old Testament patterns and, and themes. 
Because on the day of Pentecost, it, it, that's not the first time that some kind of like divine fire of God uh, has shown up like out of nowhere uh, and yet doesn't turn everything to toast. In Acts 2, when we look at it in context, um, it, isn't, it isn't really just about God giving a, a bunch of random people's sort of linguistic skills so they can get through their A-levels. Um, you know, uh, it's not even really just about sort of the fiery symbolism of the Holy Spirit's presence. Um, Pentecost is, is all about the beginning of a new world. In the uh, Hebrew Scriptures, uh, you've got these mysterious windstorms with fire and lightning taking place in all sorts of different place, places. And whenever they happen, they're always linked with two things. One is God's presence, and the second thing is the formation of a temple. Uh, in Exodus chapter 3, God, God's presence reveals itself to Moses, famously through the fire of a burning shrub. And, and it's through the burning bush that God speaks to Moses. He speaks to Moses in his own language, and he's basically saying to him, you are standing on holy ground. Take off your shoes, for where you're standing is holy ground. It's basically the establishing of a temple. And then God um, promises to empower Moses, and he says, I'll, I'll empower and equip you to help you, Moses, set my people free from their slavery and captivity. And so Moses does that. He delivers, with God's help, uh, God's people from oppression. And, and by the time you get to Exodus chapter 19, they've got to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, there's even a, a, an even more bigger, there's an even bigger fire on that mountain and it takes the form of like wind and fire and lightning this whole storm kicks off and just like before the fire is indicative of God's presence and he's marking the mountain as God's dwelling place a symbolic temple and of course, uh, as you would be, as it says in Exodus chapter 20, uh, the people are confused. Uh, some are amazed and some are just panicking, quite naturally. And then later, when the tabernacle is built on the same mountain, God shows up again, this time in a huge column of fire, and it's kind of hovering above it. And again, this, this symbol, this signals um, God's presence, marking this place as his dwelling. And then even later, further on, when Israel builds a permanent temple, guess what happens? The same fire shows up as God's kind of reflection, a symbol of God's dwelling, indwelling glory and presence, a visible and tangible sign of God's presence that it's settled on his temple and it's right at the heart of his people's community life. So you've got Moses in the burning bush, you've got Mount Sinai, you've got the tabernacle, you've got the temple. Um, they all include kind of fire that shows up when God's presence comes and marks these places as his dwelling place or his temple. And in Acts chapter 2, Luke is kind of bringing all these divine fire of God moments together to give this sort of background and context to this Pentecost story. Now, as we kind of touched on, in the past, God's fire had rested on what became God's temple. But you see it's different here in, in Acts chapter 2. 
What does what God's fire rest on here? Have a look, Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven, filled the whole place where they were staying. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Came to rest on each of them. You see, God's temple is now being set apart and made out of each one of them. Uh, John Wimber, who God used to start this family of churches called the Vineyard, pretty much every Sunday would say to the church, and who is the church? To which everyone would reply, we are. You know, like you just did. Uh, you see, the reality is God's temple is not made up of bricks and mortar. God's dwelling place is in the hearts of his people. This thing that we call church, you know, it's not a place. It's not the ark, this ark. You know, it's not the church office. It's, it's not bricks and mortar. It's people. It's us. It's you and it's me. It's made up of people who trust and follow and love and serve Jesus. And on the day of Pentecost, God's fire comes in power that harms nobody but ignites this cosmic revolution called the church. And the story of God tells us that now God dwells within the community of ordinary, hate to say it, ordinary women and men who simply follow Jesus. A living temple built together with people who follow Jesus and look like Jesus and live their lives following and serving Jesus. Pentecost marks the beginning of a whole new world. Pentecost marks the birth of this thing called the church. Now, in the run-up to these sort of strange um, events in Acts chapter 2, Jesus has already been, as we know, Jesus has already been raised from the dead, and, and he's been appearing to his disciples, giving them instructions on what they're to do next. And what they're to do, we know from Matthew 28, is to uh, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. And don't worry, surely Jesus will be with you even to the very end of the age. And so essentially their mandate was to extend God's kingdom everywhere, in every way, to every one. And you know, that would have probably been music to the disciples' ears. It's like, great, we've got a job to do. Great, okay, good. Okay, let's, let's get on with it. You know, because for centuries, God has been promising that the, the day would come where he would bring an end to all the broken and damaging things that exist in this world by establishing his own kingdom on earth, fully integrating God's way of life on heaven with our way of life on earth. And when heaven and earth are united, all these things like darkness and pain and suffering and evil, they've got nowhere to hide. And so establishing the kingdom of God, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago, it would mean the end of all suffering and all pain and all evil and darkness. And when it comes about, it comes about not through violence and not through threat and not through coercion, not through war, not through oppression. It comes about through love and mercy and kindness and grace and all the things that Jesus embodies so wonderfully and perfectly. It's basically a world saturated and soaked with love and, and not fear. 
And so for the disciples, this is undoubtedly good news. And, you know, these apostles, as they're now called, they, they're probably just itching, you know, to roll up their sleeves and get cracking on this new kingdom. But Jesus um, tells them to stay in Jerusalem. Jesus tells them to wait for the time when they will receive power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Stay in Jerusalem, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And of course, you know, being the disciples, apostles, new, new apostles, you know, they've got questions. They always had lots of questions. They never understood anything, which is fantastic because they are a fantastic model for us. And so they ask Jesus, they say, Ah, oh, Lord, so are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? To which Jesus replies in his usual inimitable style, uh, It's not for you to know the times and the dates that the Father has set. And they're probably a bit fed up, a bit cheesed off, a bit confused by all of this. Um, but Jesus assures them, he's like, just don't worry, the Holy Spirit will come and he will empower you to be my witnesses throughout the world, uh, everywhere and to everyone. It's the beginning of this new world. And this idea of um, everywhere and for everyone, it all kicks off at Pentecost. You see, Pentecost is like this international event that brings everyone into God's family, Jews, non-Jews, whatever. And it's one of the reasons that we get to see this whole speaking in tongues thing, which again is all, we're, we're very comfortable with it all, I mean, but actually it's really, really strange. Uh, and in Greek, tongues, apparently, so my learned colleagues tell me, uh, could refer just to real languages. And that sort of seems to be Luke's point here. In Acts 2, verses 7 to 8, uh, it says, um, every, everyone's asking, uh, aren't all those who are speaking, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? So how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? And you see, you know, Jesus, his apostles, they're all Jewish. You know, they're all from the same kind of neck of the woods. They're all from this northern part of Israel and Galilee or wherever. And so they would have all spoken the same language. Makes sense, you know, and there's no Duolingo kind of around. There's no app uh, that will help with translation. And so getting the good news of Jesus to the whole world in the first century was going to be a little bit tricky, you know, it's sort of like a potential flaw in God's perfect plan. That is, unless the whole world comes to them, and then all of a sudden they become bilingual, multilingual. Acts 2 verse 5 says, now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Everyone was there from all over the kind of known world, gathered in Jerusalem for the feast of of Pentecost. This is a major Jewish harvest party knees up celebration, also called the Feast of Weeks, took place, takes place uh, 50 days after Passover. And it's one of the main kind of festivals. It brings hundreds of thousands of pilgrims and travelers to Jerusalem for this great big celebration. Effectively, the whole world has come to them. Ah, that's a plan. And when the, when the wind and the fire sorry, no earth, shows up, uh, in Acts uh, chapter 2 verse 6 tells us, everyone is bewildered because each one of them was hearing the apostles speaking in their own language. Remember back in Acts uh, chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus says, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and all Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. Well, this is it. 
This is the moment. This is for the whole world, and everyone's included. Remember, you know, the, the, the apostles were witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. They, they knew all about God's deep love, uh, unbreakable love for all people. And so, to help them tell everyone from all over the world all about this remarkable God, the Spirit of God empowers them to become linguists right there and then, slap bang in the middle of a massive crowd of international travelers and pilgrims. And this is the moment when God's divine fire establishes a new temple, the new place where heaven and earth overlap. And it's not a mountain. It's not a beautiful building with stained glass. It's not uh, a less beautiful school hall with lots of drafts. It's not even like a sacred place. God's temple is made up of the most random and unexpected women and men unimaginable. God's dwelling place is in the hearts and lives of those who bear witness to the risen Christ by choosing to live in his way of love. God's dwelling place is in this new community of faith that was birthed on that first Pentecost, the church. And the whole world, from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth, is eventually going to encounter God through this very ordinary community of people who love and serve Jesus, who love and serve one another, and who love and serve the world in which they find themselves. Pentecost is about this unexpected and yet, at the same time, totally expected moment in first century Jerusalem when the apostles' heads caught fire, and when this strange indoor windstorm swelled through a packed party filled with international travelers. It's a day foreshadowed by every wind and fire episode in the Old Testament, and the day that Jesus promised would happen. It's the moment his church began, and it is the beginning of a new and peaceful world. And this outpouring, this anointing, if you like, this empowering of God's Spirit is available to every single one of us each and every single day, each and every moment of every single day. And the prayer we pray for that Pentecost outpouring is probably one of the simplest and certainly the most ancient prayers. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. And, and whilst... There may not be wind and fire. Whilst we may not find ourselves suddenly fluent in Arabic or Flemish to pick two randomly. The promise is that when we pray that prayer, he will always come. He always comes. God's spirit always, always comes. The spirit of God will come and fill us and equip us and transform us and lead us and guide us into all truth, that we might be his witnesses to our Jerusalems, to our Judeas and Samarias, and to the very ends of the earth. And just before we kind of draw to a close, I just want to go back a bit and talk about um, those 10 days or so um, between Jesus' ascension, you know, in Acts 1, where he kind of disappears, and the, the apostles are decided they're all kind of standing there looking up at the sky going, uh-oh, he's gone again. What's happening? Uh, and then the events of Pentecost 
in, in Acts chapter 2. And, you know, remember that um, Jesus has a, appeared to the disciples after the resurrection, and, and they've asked him, you know, is now the moment, is now the time that we've all been waiting for, for you to unleash your kingdom rule and reign on earth? And as we said, you know, what does Jesus tell them to do? Jesus tells them to wait. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. And I don't know about you, but I'm not sure this was the answer that I certainly would have been hoping for. Um, you know, you've got to remember these, these disciples, these people have given up everything to follow Jesus. And, you know, it's been a really kind of rough few weeks for them. They've watched as he was being arrested and tried and then crucified, an unimaginably horrific death on a Roman cross. And then uh, unbeknownst to them, as they're waiting around, confused after Good Friday, um, in the sitting in the darkness of that period of time, between Jesus' death and resurrection, they suddenly realize at the resurrection that, well, maybe he is the long-awaited Messiah after all. And now, rather than establishing his kingdom rule and reign with a flurry, as they might have hoped, Jesus is telling them once again to wait. It's like, oh, we've got to wait again. And I think there's something about this moment we're in, um, not just as a local church, not just as here, the South of Sunday but, you know, with all of the stuff that you'll have seen happening across the wider church at the moment, where it feels like we're in this space, uh, the in-between, this space of kind of uncertainty and confusion and doubt. It's all like swirling around us. It's like, I, I don't know what to think about anything anymore. I'm just like, wow, I'm so confused. I'm so overwhelmed with everything that's going on. It's sort of like a, between Ascension and Pentecost. You know, between Ascension and Pentecost, it, it's similar in so many ways to some of that swirl of emotions that would have gone on between the uncertainty and confusion and doubt of Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And our senses, and of course, I, I may be completely and utterly wrong, uh, it wouldn't be the first time. But I, I wonder if the invitation from the Spirit of God is for us to wait. To wait, to stay in Jerusalem and wait for the gift that the Father has promised. And I think, you know, that coming of that gift is birth through prayer, which is why, you know, Kate and I feel like it's really time for us as a local church to redouble our efforts and all of us to commit, whether we're on a prayer meeting or not, but to commit to praying and crying out to God for his bride, for his church, for his beloved, and for us to wait for the gift that the Father has promised, and to wait for the coming of his kingdom in all its fullness. For what we see and read about in Revelation 21, a new heaven and a new earth, where John says, you know, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And so as we find ourselves in the midst of 
a lot of swirling confusion and doubt as we find ourselves between, in many ways, Ascension and Pentecost. Um, be encouraged. The Lord is near. The Lord is here. And he wants to fill us with his presence that brings peace and joy and hope. And um, just as we end, I, I really do mean that this time, uh, the brilliant team at the Bible Project um, have put together this little short video, which I want to show you, on an anointing and, um, and what it might mean for us. Um, and in a moment, we're going to invite God's Spirit to come. He's here already. And we're going to invite him to come and fill us again and anoint us with his presence. But just as you watch this, um, just can I encourage you to allow your hearts and minds to be open to receiving again for today God's um, outpouring, God's anointing, um, God's uh, Pentecost. Why don't you watch this? There's a ritual in the Bible involving fragrant plants and spices that make a rich oil to pour on special objects or people. This is called anointing oil. And its meaning is rooted in the story of the Garden of Eden, where God provided water for the dry land and formed the human, filling him with his spirit. This is the first anointing. The oil is a liquid symbol. It's the water of life and God's spirit combined together, used to mark a person or a place as a bridge between heaven and earth. During his wilderness exile, Jacob had a dream. He sees a stairway leading up to heaven. When he wakes, he anoints the stone on which he slept and called the place House of God, a place where heaven and earth are one. The Israelites built the tabernacle in the wilderness. When it was completed, they anointed the tent with oil, marking it as a place where God's heavenly presence has come down to earth. Israel's priests and their kings were anointed with oil to set them apart as leaders, to mediate God's heavenly wisdom to the world. But they rejected God's wisdom. They led with violence leading to ruin and exile. Their failure created hope for the ultimate anointed one. One anointed not merely with oil, but with water and spirit, not merely a bridge to heaven, but heaven itself come to earth. This is Jesus Christ. More than a name, Christ is a title. It means anointed one, the new human, the ultimate priest, the cosmic king, God's heavenly life coming into our world in a new way a surprising way. And after Jesus rose from the dead, he spread his anointing out into the world through his followers. Christians, from the word Christ, anointed ones who follow the anointed one. People marked by God's spirit so that more and more of earth can be filled with the life of heaven. And, um in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul writes this, he says this, in, um, starting in verse 15, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as, my, as wise, 
making the most of every opportunity, for the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And as you may know, the tense of be filled is, is present, continuous. And, and what Paul is saying is be filled and go on being filled. Every day, every moment of every day, receive the anointing of God's presence. Receive all of God's fullness. Soak up the presence of God like a sponge. As Mumford always said, get out your buckets and let him fill you with more of him again and again and again and again. So why don't we do that right now? Why don't you stand and we'll pray and invite the Spirit of God to come and fill us.